During Lent, we built a sermon series on forgiveness. And knowing just how messy and complicated forgiveness can be, we planned out several sermons. And we've pieced them together now for your seamless listening. Christianity has its own language. Some of us, we learned it around the dinner table, saying grace before we eat a meal. Some of us learn it coming to church when we say words like follow and baptize and confess. And underneath all of those words, those practices, is another word, forgive. You see, to follow, we have to get close enough to each other where we're going to need forgiveness. And to confess, we have to ask for forgiveness. And to baptize, we proclaim forgiveness. Forgiveness is certainly something that predates Christianity. As long as there have been people around, there has been a need to ask for forgiveness and to receive it. But... Forgiveness takes on a new meaning for those of us who follow Jesus. Jesus came and he said for us to forgive our enemies. He came and he forgave his enemies and then he tells us that those of us who claim to follow him must do the same. Over the next 40 days of Lent, we will be exploring this theme of forgiveness. And as much as we will deal in the messiness of human-to-human relationship and forgiveness, we also will tap into the divine. Because the truth is, we need God's forgiveness, you and me. We need God's forgiveness because we humans put him on a cross. We need God's forgiveness because we humans ran away from that cross. We need God's forgiveness because as hard as we try, we can't get it right on our own. We need God's forgiveness and Jesus is our way. I admire teachers, period. But I I really admire teachers that not only teach with their words, but with their actions and with their lives. And Jesus was this kind of teacher. In fact, from the cross, with his dying breaths, he looks out on the humans that are killing him. And he says, Father, forgive them. And then he looks out. He looks out and he notices the absence of his friends, the absence of his disciples who have run away from the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them. Jesus 
We need God's forgiveness, and Jesus is our way. On the cross, Jesus took on our sin. He became the sacrifice, and he restores us to a full relationship with our creator. And by doing so, Jesus puts forgiveness at the center of our Christian faith. We, who are forgiven, are called to forgive. We don't get a choice. Although many of us choose to walk away, we are called to forgive. And in many ways, this understanding of forgiveness, it's what makes us unique from other faiths. We follow a God who loves us so much that he crawled into human skin to model forgiveness for us. Jesus loves us so much that he experienced pain, every level of pain, abandonment, agony, betrayal, bullying, violence, death. He knows where you are right now. He knows the deepest pain you have ever felt. He knows the sin that you carry, that traps you, that weighs you down. He knows. And because he says, Father, forgive them, we are forgiven. We need God's forgiveness, and Jesus is the way. And so as you and I get ready to smudge ashes and oil on our foreheads and to make the cross and and to say we are dust and to the dust we return, we embrace the truth that because Jesus died, And because Jesus rose, we belong to him. And because we belong to him, we belong to each other. Forgiveness is a real thing. (laughs) It's probably mine. When Jesus models forgiveness, he shows us what's possible, which is to love our enemies. That is the way. Sometimes I think about the criminals that hung on the crosses beside Jesus. There were two of them, three crosses. And one of the cross, one of the criminals mocked Jesus and said, you've saved all these people. If you're the son of God, save yourself, right? But the other criminal, he acknowledges who Jesus is. He says, we're up here being crucified for a crime we committed, but Jesus, he didn't commit the crime. Jesus, the man on the middle cross, he's paying a price of a sin that was not his own. And Jesus, you might remember, says to this particular man, this criminal, I will see you in paradise. That's what he says before he dies. So I like to think about that criminal rolling up into heaven. He didn't expect to be there. He didn't even know there was possible. 
Can you imagine his eyes so big, just taking it all in? And then he runs into somebody who says, hey, what's your name? Why are you here? Can you imagine his shock? I like thinking about somebody asking him, hey, why are you here? And him, just with such honest and humility and earnest saying, I don't know. The man on the middle cross said I could come. The cross is just one way God says, I love you. The cross is one way God says, I forgive you. The cross is the way Jesus says, come on, come with me. Because of Jesus, we are forgiven. And because of Jesus, we are called to forgive. So in this season of Lent, may Jesus work our hearts toward forgiveness. Amen. The title of today's sermon is Forgiving the Dead. Forgiving the Dead. It was Monday. It was Monday and I drove to the mountains of Montreat, North Carolina to eat dinner with our high schoolers. They were there for a conference, Christian conference. It was Monday and so it's the first day of the conference. The first day that these teenagers are away from home away from their families, the first day they're getting used to each other and they're experiencing what this camp is gonna be like. It was Monday. I pull into the driveway and I see a few of our high school boys out front throwing the football. I walk inside and I see a few more of our high schoolers making a TikTok. They did let me make one with them. I don't think they posted it. A few more were making jewelry and listening to music in the entryway. So I just sat down with them and I asked about their day. If you've spent any time with a teenager recently, it's really normal if they don't answer you for a while. (laughs) But then out of the blue, one of them looks up and says, Dawn, do you think we could forgive someone who's dead? It was Monday. Do you think we can forgive someone who's dead? Have you been thinking about that? Is there someone that pops in your mind when you hear that question? I did not have a quick answer. And it's a good thing because unprompted then the teenagers, they kept talking and they they started to tell me where this question came from. That morning they heard a keynoter, Gail, describe her need to forgive her father-in-law. See, Gail and her husband, they're from different ethnicities. And her father-in-law was habitually mean to her because of that difference. He ignored her. He said derogatory things about her. He never accepted her. And now, Her father-in-law is dead. 
He never apologized. She's not sure he's capable of apologizing or if he would ever want to, but she needs to forgive him. She says as much in her keynote to those high schoolers. She says she needs to let go of the hatred that she carries because of him. But she says, you know, it's hard. It's hard to forgive him because he's dead. How do you forgive someone who's dead? Someone who cannot hear the truth? Someone who cannot apologize? Someone who cannot change their behavior moving forward? Is it even possible to forgive the dead? Well, the author of Ephesians doesn't quite answer this question head on, but they do give us a lot of insight. In this letter, we are urged towards unity. It says, speak the truth with your neighbor because we are members of one another. We are members of one another. Now this isn't new, this is a theme echoed throughout scripture. Because we belong to Christ, we belong to each other. We're connected to each other, whether we like it or not. And we hear it first in in Genesis four, when Cain murders his brother, Abel. You remember that story? And God calls him out, Cain, where's your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, turns out you are. We are members of one another. We hear it again in 1 Corinthians when we're described, we the, church, we the church as a body. And when one part of the body is broken, the whole body is sick because we are members of one another. This question about forgiving the dead, it's a spiritual question because it transcends life and death. I mean, who else can give us a pathway between life and death but Jesus? We are members of one another and that means we have to deal with the dead. We don't get to just forget about them. And Gail knew this. She knows this when she described to the high schoolers why she needs to forgive her father-in-law because even though he's dead and he can't say anything now to hurt her, his sickness continues to harm her. His meanness continues to pop up in her memory and to harden her heart. His sin continues to affect her. And yeah, he's dead, so she can't change him. She can't get an apology out of him. She can't hope for a different future, but she can give herself permission to let it go, to let him go, let the meanness go. Wipe the stain clean so she doesn't hold on to it anymore. This is grace. Gail knows this truth that when we don't let go of hatred, it lives on inside of us. It's part of being members of one another. When one part is sick, even dead, though we're connected, we are sick ourselves. And though we cannot change each other, we can change our response. We can name the truth, we can forgive. I wonder how many of us in this room right now or those who will listen to this podcast later, how many of us have experienced a sin that gets passed down through generations? 
How many of us have seen issues like addiction or adultery or stealing just pop up generation after generation? It's because we haven't named the harm and made amends. Somehow it gets stuck in our consciousness, into our body, because we are members of one another. And without truth speaking, without forgiveness, we hold on to that sin. Or maybe it holds on to us. You and I, we know the power of sin and we know the grace of forgiveness. We know its place in the gospel. We know its place in our hearts. The question is how, Dawn, how can we forgive the dead? I know Gail struggled with this too. And those teenagers on Monday struggled as well. And again, Ephesians gives us insight. In the final verse we read, it says, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. If God can forgive us from heaven, then we can forgive from earth. We don't have to worry about the logistics of how our forgiveness will transcend that mysterious life line between life and death. If God can forgive us from heaven, which God does, then we can forgive from earth. And we can trust God to help us release what it is we carry from someone who is dead. I don't know what yours is. It might be anger, it might be confusion, it might be betrayal. It might be physical abuse or emotional abuse or spiritual abuse. God can take it from you. God can help us forgive. We might need to speak it out loud though. There's a TV show on Apple TV right now called Shrinking. Have any of y'all watched it? I watched the whole season in like one day. It's really good. Although it's not kid approved, there's a lot of bad words. Jason Siegel's character is the main character. He loses his wife, she dies in a tragic car accident. And the whole show is how he, a shrink, uh, he deals with it by being excruciatingly honest with everyone. And at one point, Jason goes into his room and he lifts a photograph frame that has been face down for the whole show. He lifts it up. And he sits down, it's a picture of his late wife. And he's done some things that he needs to apologize for. But he looks at this photo and he says, you know, you owe me an apology too for leaving. We can speak the truth to our neighbor, even those who have died. And we can speak our intention to let go, our desire to forgive. And sometimes that's enough. Because God does the rest. I've been hearing from many of you during this sermon series on forgiveness, stories and memories and names of people who have harmed you. And question again and again, how Dawn, how do I forgive? And if there was a magic wand that I could wave and take care of all of it, y'all know that I would, but there is not. Today's Sunday, tomorrow is Monday and whatever situation you're thinking about right now, it's still gonna be there tomorrow. No situation of forgiveness is the same. No timeline is the same, but the grace, 
The grace that God offers to us in Christ Jesus, that is the same. The ability for God to intercede for us and to lift that burden we carry to take it off into heaven, that grace is the same. There's a man in this church who recently told me that he forgave the woman who had harmed him. And there were tears in his eyes and immediately there were tears in my own. This is why. I've been hearing about the harm that this couple has been doing to each other for five years. For five years, I've been hearing from both of them, the harm, the mean things they've been doing to each other in this web of, of sin and hatred that we weave sometimes for each other. And I'm gonna be honest with you, I thought this was a lost cause. Not them as humans, but forgiveness. I thought there's no way. Until he looked at me in the eye with tears running down this grown man's face and he said, it happened. And I didn't have to ask how. He said it was God. It was God. It was God. Amen. In high school, I used to play soccer for Walter Williams High School in Burlington, North Carolina. And I wasn't that good, but I love the game. I love to play. I remember one particular game, it was in playoffs, where you have to win to advance to the next game. The score was tied one to one. And our parents in the stands were getting rowdy, excited. You know the type. And the field lights, they were shining down on us like spotlights, beams, so bright you could see the, the microscopic flies. And the opposing team was on the offense and they were putting the pressure on. I played defense. I was on a team of four, the goalie, the sweeper, and the two fullbacks. And it's our job to defend the goal, not to let that ball cross into our goal. I know some of you play competitive sports and I am here to tell you that there's nothing like girls high school, high school soccer. It is intense. I remember my coach pulling me aside and saying, Dawn, I want you to defend so close up on this person that you can tell me the flavor of the chewing gum in her mouth. <laughs> so here we are at the end of the game, the pressure is mounting and we are hustling. And they, they are a strong team, so they just keep coming at us, attack after attack after attack. And with one minute left in the game, I heard the refs whistle. And I watched my coach start walking onto the field and we knew the cue, that was a time out. So we jog on over, the girls get up from the bench, bring us some water, we're passing it around, we circle around our coach and we lean in as he crouches to the ground and marks out our next play. A play that would help us get the ball from the defense to the other side of the field. A play that would help those of us, the four defenders, look up and utilize more of our team. Why am I telling you this story? Well, 
because like my soccer coach in high school, Jesus is calling a time out. In the trial in the temple, Jesus says time out. Jesus is taking this moment to release some of the pressure when he bends to the ground and he writes. So can you imagine this scene? This is basically a Bible study, right? I need to sit down to teach. That's the only difference. Can you imagine 2,000 years ago, in the midst of Bible study, the church leaders bring a woman in. They bring her up on stage and they make her stand before everyone. They make a trial and they prosecute her. This woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now I know we've got a bunch of trial lawyers in this church. And I know that many of us have been attached to our phones watching a trial the last few weeks. This prosecution doesn't leave any room for reasonable doubt. None, she is guilty. And the prosecution continues by reminding us the law of Moses says all adulterers, men and women, must be stoned. And they look to Jesus and they say, what do you say? And that's when Jesus calls a time out. That's when he bends to the ground and he writes. He moves from his seated position, a position of authority. Think the seat behind the bench, right? He moves from that seated position to bended knee on the ground. And though we set the stage like Jesus is the judge and the woman is on trial, it's not really about her. The scripture tells us as much. These leaders are trying to catch Jesus in breaking the law. They are all ready to arrest him in the act of breaking the law. These officials, they know Jesus. They've been watching him. They know he has this propensity to break the law, to heal on the Sabbath, to perform miracles and feed the thousands. They are pretty sure he bends toward forgiveness. So they push this woman before her, but they really put him on the stand. And Jesus knows forgiveness is hard. That's not news to him. In fact, Jesus knows what his forgiveness will cost him in this moment. If he speaks to forgive this woman, he will be arrested and killed. So these these leaders, they're actively looking for an opportunity to seize him. And when they put him on trial, he flips their script. He models forgiveness when he bends his knee. He bends on the ground. And with his finger, he writes something. Don't you want to know what he writes? I really wish those those words didn't get left out of the scripture. I really wish we knew what he writes. There's one scholar that I really like. This scholar says, notice that he bends down twice. Look at it in the text. The first time is when they put him on trial. Teacher, what do you say? And he bends down. And this scholar thinks he draws a line on the ground between the woman and the people. And he stands up and he says, anyone among you throw the first stone. And then immediately he goes back down and erases the line. He's modeling. With, with his body, with his actions, more than his word, how to forgive. 
The mere fact that Jesus breaks eye contact with the people coming at him gives them space to reflect on what he has said. It gives them a chance to actually walk away. What are those words of the psalmist? The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Yeah, that's Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I sure wish I could be more like him. I am not. How many of us get caught up in an argument? How many of us have the propensity to raise our voice to make our point in an argument? How many of us can lose our tempers? How many of us do this thing? Probably not you, I do this. I just replay the argument over and over in my head. I don't know about you, but every time I replay it, I get better. I edit the arguments and I'm ready for the next time someone comes at me. How many of us do this thing? This is what is named as sin in our scripture where, where we move from, from this idea of justice or righteous anger just starts to slip in our minds to wrath. Many of us are holding on to a rock, at least one, maybe two, and maybe we're not actively throwing it, but we are holding on to it and it's making us hard and it's weighing us down. Maybe we're keeping it in our pockets, you know, not actively in our hands, but we're just not ready to release it, not yet. You know what I'm talking about. These stones are the family member who doesn't respect the boundary you set. These stones are the family member that cheats and steals and you know you cannot trust. These stones represent the friend that broke confidence, that shared something important of you with others. This stone represents the person that broke your heart. Maybe, maybe you carry a rock for the time when you slipped up, the time when you've been on trial, and maybe you're just holding on to this rock to hold on to guilt inside of you. Well, let me tell you what that does to you. It makes you hard, and it makes it seem impossible to forgive. Well, here's the good news. Jesus sees you. Jesus can name these stones before you can. Jesus sees you playing on the defense. Jesus sees you desperate and he calls time out. Did you notice that Jesus gives grace to everyone in the story? Not just one person. Jesus gives grace to everyone. The woman, she gets grace because she's not stoned. She gets to walk away. The church leaders and and the people participating in the Bible study, they get grace because they don't have to participate in murder. Jesus gets grace because he's not arrested and killed. Not then. And we receive grace. You and I reading this story 2,000 years later because Jesus is giving us a time out to breathe, to pass around those water bottles, to make a choice 
Not out of angry reaction, but thoughtful, careful response. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Y'all, Jesus knows that forgiveness is hard. He knows that the sin of this woman, it doesn't just affect her. Think of her husband. Think of her kids, her parents. Shame from sin has this this ability to create ripple effects. It's why we have the law from Moses and from Jesus. It's to help us live in community for the health of the community. And I want us to notice that Jesus doesn't change the law. Committing adultery is a sin before, during, and after the trial. Jesus doesn't throw out that law, no. He holds her accountable. Notice at the end when he says, go, he says, and sin no more. Jesus holds her accountable. He doesn't say it's okay to commit adultery. No, that's not Jesus' grace. He upholds the law. What he does is change us. He gives us an opportunity to drop our stones. Drop the stones, the ones that take up real estate in your brain and in your heart, the ones that make you hard on the inside. Jesus says, here is grace. Y'all, after that um, timeout that my soccer coach called in the playoff game, we had to go back on the field. We had to play the last minute of the game. And so we too, after this time out and looking together at what Jesus might be drawing on the ground, we have to go back to our lives. And we have a choice. If we're gonna keep carrying the stone, holding tight, letting it weigh us down, or if we're gonna release it, it's our choice. Forgiveness is hard, yes. But maybe we can practice praying the words, Lord, help us, help me, know how. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Helena Bala was exhausted by her job on Capitol Hill. And so in an effort to find more meaningful work, a different job, She posted on Craigslist this ad. In the ad, she volunteered to listen to people, strangers. That's right, free, anonymous listening in DC. And she didn't put any qualifications on her post. She's she's not a priest, she's not a therapist, she doesn't claim to be. What she promises is that she will show up and listen. She won't ask questions, she won't interrupt, She won't give advice. She says it's very hard. When Helena posted this ad, she was not prepared for the volume of people that would respond, that wanted to meet up with her. And before long, she had so many people filling the hours of her day that she had to quit her job on Capitol Hill so that she could listen full time. Some of the confessionals that she heard were devastating. Stories of rage, of addiction without recovery, of grief. 
She said that people were more willing to share with her when they realized that she wasn't going to interrupt. She wasn't gonna interject her opinion on the matter. She said people just opened up and told the whole truth. Helena realized that when people are in pain, they don't need more information. They don't need better information. They need to be heard. Helena's uh, Craigslist Confessionals, that's the book she wrote with some of the stories that she heard doing her listening. Her Craigslist Confessionals, it got me thinking about how we apologize and the role of listening. How many of you have had this experience where you muster up the courage to go apologize to someone and just as soon as you have those words out of your mouth, forgive me for, you start saying the words, you watch the blood just drain out of the face, the person in front of you. And you see the anger start to build up. Have y'all ever had this happen? And you realize that what you have just named, what, what you are apologizing for doesn't line up with what the other person is upset about. And these words almost always follow next, at least for me. If only you would listen. Have y'all had that happen before or is it, just, is it just me? Listening is crucial when we make an apology because sometimes it's clear where we have messed up, but sometimes it's really not. We each experience life through our own lens. Right, like we are the main character in our story, each of us. Which means that we only see what we can see. Often, we only see what we want to see, which means that none of us see the whole picture. So it's important that we listen before we apologize. Gilbert Chesterton says this, he says, a stiff apology is a second insult. He says the injured party doesn't wanna be compensated because he has been wronged. He wants to be healed because he has been hurt. Well, the priest Aaron, he knows about healing. Like Helena, Aaron has been listening He's been listening to God every day when he reads scripture and when he prays, he's listening for God's voice. He's listening for God's instruction for his life and for the community. He listens so he knows what to say. And not only is Aaron listening to God, but he's also listening to himself. He's listening to what's going on inside of him What does he need to apologize for in the community? Who is angry with him? And maybe he's thinking about these questions as he leads this bull. Can you imagine me leading a bull up to the altar? Maybe he's thinking about these questions and with each step outward, he's also doing an inward one. He might spend some silence when he gets to the altar spend some time in silence, aware that there are probably people who are upset with him that he doesn't even know about. So maybe he spends some time in silence there, trusting that God will will add 
those people's names, those sins, to the list. Aaron listened so he knows what to say. And then not only is Aaron listening to God and to himself, but he's also spending lots of time listening to people in the community. He's, he needs to listen because remember that part of the scripture where Aaron's going to need to lay hands on the live goat and he's going to need to verbalize every sin of the community to transfer the sin of the community to the live goat before he sends it out into the wilderness. He listens so he knows what to say. Aaron listens in the street alleyway to what young Bill did to Louisa. And he listens to the teachers in the school cafeteria about the harm that's happening in homes. And he's listening to the worshipers who's coming into the temple and are just unloading, confessing to him the wrongs that they've done, the things that they've thought about, the heaviness they carry. He listens so he knows what to say. The Day of Atonement, it's a holy day for the Israelites. Atonement means to be at one with God. And when we sin, when we disobey God's law, when we uh, hurt each other, we are pulled apart from God. We can feel that separation. Atonement through confession is bringing our relationship back together, becoming one with God. And that's what Aaron is doing on this Day of Atonement. He knows how powerful sin is in the community. Can you imagine being the one to hear all of the sin? He knows the grip it has on us, the ripple effects throughout the community. He knows how powerful sin is, and so he follows these steps meticulously to cleanse himself, the temple, the people. He asks God over and over again, forgive me, forgive us. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I am very grateful we don't have to slaughter bulls or talk to goats in the church in order to confess our sins. I don't think I'd be very good at it. And Jesus, he did away with animal sacrifices when he became the sacrifice for us. He took on all of our sin on the cross. Through him, we are forgiven. Through Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. And we still sin. We are forgiven and we are in this constant need of forgiveness. And it's messy because not only do we need to ask God for forgiveness for the ways we have sinned, but we have to ask each other for forgiveness all the time. I don't know if we're doing it all the time, but the need for apologies is there. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew 5:23, if you're offering a gift at the altar, so you're not bringing animal sacrifices, right? But if you are, are offering um, yourself to be baptized, a child to be baptized, if you're offering money, gifts to support this church and the offering bowls, if you're offering anything at the altar and you have anyone who is upset with you, this is what Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar, go apologize to your brother and sister, and then come back. Jesus sees it so connected, our sin to God and one another, that he requires that we go to each other and we apologize. 
Remember, Jesus' number one commandment, law, was to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. And the second is like it, love your neighbor. Jesus makes those almost indistinguishable. And so though we won't be sacrificing bulls anytime soon up here, and though I will not start talking to goats, I promise, here's what we can do this week. I want you to listen. Listen to your roommates. Listen to your partners at work. Listen to your friends. Listen to your Uber driver. Listen to our elders. Listen to our children. Listen to each and every person that you come in contact with this week. And when you notice something that you can atone for, I want you to say the words, forgive me for, And here's the catch. I want you to be as specific as you possibly can. You may say those words, forgive me for under your breath, like a prayer to God. Or you may have the gumption to say it out loud. To the spouse who's been giving you angry looks all week and you finally stop and sit down and ask what's wrong. Or to the coworker who uh, passive aggressively just keeps um, opening up that dishwasher, you know? It's just like a humble nudge to everyone to move the dirty dish from the counter to the dishwasher. Or listen to the child that tantrums because they so desperately need to be heard. Listen and then say the words, forgive me for. It's so important to be specific in those words that follow so that you're letting the person who has been hurt by you know that they have been heard. I know this is a big ask. I don't know what else you got going on in your calendar. This might take up some space. I know it's a big ask, but I wonder what will change when we listen. What will change in us? What will change in this community? What will change in the city of Columbia, in our state, in our nation, in our world? Jesus was doing the the listening for free business way before Helena. And to her credit, she lets us know that we don't have to be Jesus to do the holy work. So I want you to listen, like Jesus, like Aaron, like Helena, And as we listen, I'm curious to hear from you what changes. How do we change? How do we atone and become one with God? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I'd like to take a moment this morning to share with you from a message entitled, What to Do with an Apology. What to do with an apology. I like to sleep. I like my sleep. Anybody else like your sleep? I like my sleep. I like my rest. I like my quiet time. I like those moments when only thing I can hear is my breath. And I just love that. I like to bask in that right there. I like my bed. I like my pillows. Like my comforters, I like all of that. I set it up just the way I like it, and I like it. 
And when I crawl in between those comforters and that pillow, and I get, you, you get just right, you know what I'm talking about? You, just, you get just right. All the pillows are right where they're supposed to be. I don't want to move and I don't want to hear a thing. After one particular week, a long trip of business speaking engagements across the country and doing other things, came home, I was tired. And I could not wait to get into my bed. I was tired of hotel beds, tired of traveling. I was tired. And everything was just right and I got into bed and it was bedtime. And a half an hour later, I heard some noise. My neighbors decided that it was a night to party. And whoever was the person that designed where I lived, they decided to put my bedroom window right near my neighbor's driveway. So when my neighbor pulls up with their music playing, it's right below my bedroom window. I don't know who decided to do that, but it is what it is. And it was loud. And then they decided to do some more talking as they stood outside in the car and talked in the driveway instead of going in the house. I know my neighbor, so I picked up my phone and I sent them a text message. I said, hey, I'm tired, it's late. Could you do me a favor and take that inside? I'd really appreciate that right there. And I don't know if they heard it or not or read it or not, but they kept talking for a while and I finally got up to go say something, but by the time I got up and put on my robe to walk outside, they had already gone. But my sleep, my sleep was now disturbed. You ever had your sleep disturbed? And now it takes a minute. Thank you, little man. Appreciate that. <laughs> and now it takes a minute to get back into that groove, so to speak. Also took a trip to the refrigerator to eat something I shouldn't, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> but my neighbor owed me an apology. I felt my neighbor should apologize. They owed me an apology. They disturbed my sleep. They disrupted my evening. I was not bothered. They bothered me and they owed me an apology. So surely by the morning time, when I checked my text message, there would be an apology there, but there wasn't one. Nothing. Surely when they see me leave the house, they'll come outside and say, hey man, my bad, we saw. There was nothing. And now I was even angrier because I was owed an apology. The notion of apologies and forgiveness is a worthy topic. The need for apologizing can be so obvious for one yet obscure to the other. Forgiveness can be attainable in one instance and seem unreachable in another. Sometimes we are the provider of the apology and sometimes we are the recipient. Sometimes we are the seeker of forgiveness and sometimes we are the grantor. Sometimes we make the call and send the message and sometimes we are waiting to answer the call or the message. One thing is for sure, we will all spend our fair share of time in all of these seats. Just as much as my neighbor annoyed me, I know I annoy somebody else. Just as much as I believe my neighbor owed me an apology, I'm sure there's somebody who thinks I owe them one. And by the way, they are probably correct. As we talk about what to do with an apology today, I want to set the stage for this because it's pretty important because apologies are a part of our lives, whether we like it or not. And what I found is that there are three stages to apologies. There's the pre-apology stage, there's the apology itself, and there's the post-apology stage. And the pre-apology stage is pretty interesting. I'm not going to spend much time there, but I want to set it up for you. See, after a, far, a harm or a foul or a transgression or wrongdoing, there's the journey of the apologizer. This is important. I'm going to come back to my neighbor in a little bit. 
There's a journey of the person who knows they did something. They're on a journey. See, before they reach the point of the apology, they go through some things. See, some people can apologize immediately. In the moment something happened, I recognize it, my bad. My bad, can, can you forgive me? My bad. Some people take some time. They gotta walk away, they gotta think about it, they gotta talk about it, they gotta read about it, they gotta reflect upon it. It takes a minute to reach that point of apology. Some have internal struggles and battles with, is the apology even necessary? Is that that big of a deal? And they wrestle with the need for the apology. There are a variety of paths that people go through to get to the apology, and I want you to recognize that no path is the same. So we reach that point of apology, and I'm going to start there today because I want us to recognize that that's where what I consider the mystery of God really shows up there. Now, we're at this point of apology, but I got to warn you, apologizing isn't easy. Do y'all know that? One of the things that makes apology, apologizing kind of hard is this. We have apology criteria and expectations. Oh, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. We have apology criteria and expectations. See, mine with my neighbor was immediate. Right now. You come, you come now. That was my criteria. And he did not meet my criteria, by the way. But, but here's the deal. Watch this. I'm going to give you some criteria. Tell me how this matches up with your apology experience in life. Some people view the apology as a gift. Person did something, they come and apologize, they're bringing me a gift. Let me receive that apology from you, we're good. Some people view the apology as a mission of guilt. I knew it. <laughs> it's exactly right. I hope you learned your lesson. <laughs> Some people view the apology as an opening, a chance for us to open up our hearts and relationship and connect with each other. Some view it as a punishment. Some view it as a bridge, a bridge that can fill the gap between two people, a, a bridge that can bring two people from where they are to where they want to be. What I'm learning is that the apology in and of itself is an exchange. That moment is an interesting moment. Some people doing the apology, here's the criteria. I'll apologize as long as we don't have to talk about it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I'll apologize, but I don't want to talk about it. Can I just say I'm sorry and we be done with this? I know I'm stepping on somebody's toes this morning. I'm sorry. <laughs> Some of us don't even say it out loud. We just nod our heads. <laughs> that just means we're good now, right? <laughs> the exchange. That moment, some of us just move through it. Others want to sit in it. Oh, here's my apology criteria. Once you apologize to me, we're going to sit in it. And now let's sit back and dissect and debrief. What lessons did you learn through this process? Oh, that's fun. Some of us, during the apology experience, we want to know, well, what motivated them to apologize in the first place? We ask questions like this. Why are you apologizing now? <laughs> now, we don't say that out loud, <laughs> but we think that sometimes. Sometimes, well, are they really sincere? What do you really want? Are they sorry they did it or sorry they got caught? Are they doing it because they have to or, or they want to? Maybe, maybe I can just let, you know what, let me think about this apology. Maybe I can milk this a little while longer to get something out of it. Oh, what to do with an apology? We can judge it. 
We can question the sincerity of it. We can refuse it. We can ignore it. Or we can receive it. Let me say that again. We can judge it. We can question the sincerity of it. We can refuse it. We can ignore it. Or we can receive it. By the way, I've done a little bit of all of that in my lifetime, and I'm sure some of you have as well. And I found from my own state of mind, my state of being, receiving works out best for me. Not saying it's the easiest, but it works out best for me. This story of Joseph and his brothers is a story about what to do with an apology. Within this story, there are projections and assumptions and so many family dynamics. And if you have not read Genesis chapter 50, I would encourage you to go back and spend some time walking through that verse by verse, line by line, paragraph by paragraph. It is fascinating. There's a lot here. And I really wasn't able to condense it all into three neatly alliterated points to share with you. So I'm going to just spend some time walking through the scriptures, if you don't mind. Let's do it together. And I'm going to highlight some key points along the way that tell us what to do, guide us in what to do with an apology. In verse 15, realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brother said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong we did to him. You harm someone. You get away with it. You get away with it. You don't have to see them. They're not near you anymore. They're gone. It's in the past. It's over. But something happens in life as it tends to happen and your paths are about to cross again. What do you do? You have that what if moment like his brothers. What, but, 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 but what if he remembers and, and he has a grudge because we know we did wrong. And what if he pays us back in full because if he pays us back, I know he's going to do it because I pay us back because I'm putting my projection on him. So what if he pays us back? What, what, what if? Maybe it's the person that you didn't treat well when you were climbing up the corporate ladder at work. And then one day when you go to change jobs, you find out they're on the interview committee bringing you into the new job. What if they remember how I did not take care of them when I could have? What if it's the student in school that you treated bad and you picked on with your other friends because you didn't know how not to pick on them and now that student is the tutor in the class that you need help in in order to graduate or go to the next level? What if they hold that grudge? What if they remember? What if they get me like I got them? When people are on the path to their apology, they play it out in their minds before they get to you. I want you to sit with that for a second. When we're on a path or somebody's on a path to apology, we play that thing out in our head before the moment of apologizing even surfaces. And our projections can run wild with us. But what if this? What if they do this? What if we do that? We play it all out, good, bad, or indifferent, before they even show up. When people bring you apologies, when people bring us apologies, I want us to recognize that for many people, it took them a lot just to have the strength to bring it to us. It is a vulnerable moment, even though they did wrong, even though it should not have happened. It is a moment of vulnerability because I don't know what they're going to do with this apology I'm about to give them. Will he bear a grudge and pay us back? And we'll never know until we take the chance, the risk, follow God's spirit, follow the Holy Ghost, 
in making that apology. So they, they got the nerve. They get this. Watch this. Verse 16. They approached Joseph saying, your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, wait a minute. Did y'all, did y'all listen to some keys this right here? Did y'all listen to this? They approached Joseph saying, your father gave this instruction. Your father told us what to say. Can I just break this down for a second? Daddy is the one that said, Daddy told me to tell you I'm sorry. <laughs> Daddy said it. <laughs> Dad, well, Daddy didn't do it. You did it. <laughs> Daddy said this. Daddy wrote the note. <laughs> Wait a minute. Who's seeking forgiveness? The brothers or the fathers? Who harmed Joseph? Do you really mean it or are you just saying it because Daddy told you to tell me before he died? Oh, now the dad has died and my dreams are coming to fruition. Famine is coming upon the land and now you know you're going to need me. That's why you're here. That's why you're apologizing. That is not what Joseph did. Let me tell you what Joseph did not do with the apology. He did not use it as a moment to remind them of the power he now had over them. He did not use it as an opportunity to see just how desperate they were and make them beg. He did not use it to find a way to harm them during their time of vulnerability. He did not use it to question their sincerity. What to do with an apology? See, in my flesh, I could do all of that. Oh, I got you now. I'm going to make you beg. I'm going to do it, but you're going to work for this right here. That's not what he did. What did he do? Joseph wept. He wept. His tears spoke for him. You ever been in a space where somebody apologizes and the only thing that happens are the tears just rush out? It's almost like the opening of the apology releases the emotions within us. I believe there are people even right now to the sound of my voice that are waiting to forgive somebody, that are waiting to hear an apology, that, are, that have tears waiting to flow and don't even know the tears are there, waiting to weep. Waiting to receive an apology and request forgiveness. If only we could go to them with the instructions our father provided. Now here's what got me when I read this. The request for forgiveness the brothers are seeking is coming from the father. The father told them what to say. They are repeating the words of the father. What would happen if our request for forgiveness of each other came from the father? What if we went to the Father for the words to say to each other when offering an apology and seeking forgiveness? What if we repeated the words of our Father in seeking and granting forgiveness and apologies for each other? See, see the parent in me, the parent in me wants my children to forgive each other. I think parents would identify with that. The, the parent in me does not want my children holding grudges against each other. Parents want their children to live in harmony and to live in peace. I've talked to parents over the years, and what hurts a parent is when their children don't get along with each other. Parents want their children to be on one accord. Parents want their children to experience the joy of their siblings. And I believe this is what God wants for us. 
The path to this place of harmony is filled with moments of apologizing and forgiving. And when we do not know what to say, let me tell you what daddy said. We don't know what to say. Daddy said something I can find. God the Father found something. There's something we can find that God said that can help us in those moments when we do not know what to say. Verse 18, then his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, we are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? His brothers wept. Now everybody crying, y'all. Everybody crying. <laughs> everybody just crying. And that's okay. Sometimes, sometimes everybody needs to cry. A heartfelt apology can do that. It can melt the ice between us. And, 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 but here's the deal, though. Because the brothers are saying this, look at the projection. We are your slaves. We, they're coming in the door knowing we got to pay this back now. He, he's about to do to us what we did to him. It's payback time because we know, we know once you harm me, it's my turn to harm you. And we know that apology is the next step in that formula, payback. Apologize, oh, we know payback is next. No, not in God's view. That cycle or the assumption of that cycle is what prevents many people from apologizing. If I apologize, I have to be subjected to the pain I caused. Actually, it's the non-apologies that keep us subjected to and bound to the pain that we caused. We talk a lot about the pain of not forgiving and how it wears us out. Let me share something with you this morning. The pain of carrying an apology that our pride won't let us speak causes pain also. And then Joseph goes a step further and says, am I in the place of God? Even though I am impacted by the actions and decisions of others, even though I am deserving of the apology, even though people are requesting my forgiveness, excuse me, Joseph reminds us we are still not the judge. We are still not the jury. We still do not control the levers of anyone's ultimate consequence. That's not our place. Verse 20. Why? Because even though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. This one was tough for me. This one was tough for me. When Joseph looked at his journey through a spiritual lens, he recognized that his path, watch this, his path and his pain positioned him to be right where God wanted and needed him to be. Let me say that again. When Joseph looked at his journey through a spiritual lens, he recognized that his path and his pain positioned him right where God wanted and needed him to be. If Joseph had been consumed with grudges and anger and unforgiveness and hate and payback, the result would have been devastating for all the people. What someone did wasn't fair, Charles. I know. It wasn't nice, Charles. I know. It wasn't right, Charles. I know. But they did it. But when we don't receive the apology, what they did to us keeps getting done to us over and over and over again in our heads and in our hearts. And we carry the grudges and the anger and the unforgiveness. What to do with the apology? This does not mean that God wants bad things to happen to people. That's not what this means. 
It means that when things happen to us that are bad, through God's eyes, at some point, we can see the path to good. Verse 21, so have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. And this way he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. If Joseph were one of my friends today, he'd simply say, I got you. We good. I got you. That's how me and my friends talk to each other. We good. I got you. What to do with the apology? See, the Joseph model, I call it the Joseph model, shows up in verse 21 right there. What did Joseph do? Watch this. He received the apology. He reassured his brothers. He can reassure. Watch this. He says to them, have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. Received the apology. Reassured the other person. And he restored hope in the relationship. That's what Joseph did. I love the fact that the writer of this felt it was important to say, and he spoke kindly to them. He said it kindly to them. Family, I know it's hard. I know it's not easy. But when people apologize, what do we do with it? We do our best to follow the Joseph model. We receive it. We reassure the other person. We do what we can to restore the relationship. My neighbor, three days later, I was in my backyard sitting on the deck. He said, hey, can I talk to you? I said, yeah, what's up? He said, I saw your text you sent me the other night. He said, I didn't come to you right away and apologize because I was embarrassed. He said, you're a good dude. You've helped me out, and uh, I like you, and you're a good neighbor. You don't judge me. And uh, the fact that we were making noise and disturbing you, he goes, that bothered me, and, and I felt bad. He goes, quite frankly, I saw you leave your house a couple of times, and I stayed inside so I didn't have to face you. <laughs> he said, I was embarrassed. He said, but please know I'm, I'm sorry. And, and I told my friends when they come over to see me to approach the house quietly, and uh, I hope we're good. And I said, we're good. What to do in apology. Thanks be to God. You know how over time families develop their own proverbs? Like the catchphrases, the maxims, the words to live by that someone started maybe decades ago and get passed down from generation to generation, parent to child. I think of my grandfather, Charlie, who grew up poor, he grew up on a farm, and he grew up during the Great Depression. And because of his heritage, his family background, he was incredibly sensitive to food waste. We all knew this. Anytime we ate food, the rule would be, take what you want, eat what you get. Plates would always be clean after a meal. Or I think about my dad. He was a coach on the basketball court, an advisor in our youth group, a leader in my Boy Scout troop, and a fan on the sidelines watching me play high school lacrosse. And in whatever I was doing, there would always be times when I wanted to quit. And he'd always be an encourager. 
I'd want to give up because things got too difficult. I'd want to quit scouts when earning first class felt like too much work. I'd want to quit basketball when I fouled out in the first quarter. I'd want to quit lacrosse when the coach and I did not see eye to eye. The proverb my dad repeated to me was, quitters never win, winners never quit. And it's interesting what sticks with us from our past, the things that shape us from our families and our heritage. And Jesus is talking about families in this scripture, and he's doing it in some of the most aggressive, stark language in the entire gospel. You've got to hate your family, you've got to hate yourself, or you cannot be my disciple. Sheesh. This is the guy who tells us to love, right? Who follows the Torah, which commands us to honor our parents, who one minute says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and then tells us, you've got to carry the cross or you cannot be my disciple. And this word for disciple can become convoluted, churchy language with a lot of baggage, inaccessible and distant. But the Greek, the the word is methetes. And the root means the mental effort needed to think things through. The mental effort needed to think things through. It's where we get the word math. And it helps me to think of it less as a church exclusive word like disciple and more of a learner, a student. Someone who's figuring things out as they come, taking life one step at a time, trying and often failing to follow Jesus. So it appears that Jesus is looking at his students, his crowds of students who just aren't getting it. They haven't understood most of anything that he has done. And in a bit of frustration, he drops the niceties. It's like he transitions from a Southern gentleman on Divine Street to an old man from Boston. He tells it like it is. He's used his frustrated, exaggerated language to tell the crowd what it's like to truly be his student, to truly learn his ways. He's asking people to prioritize new, uncomfortable experiences with him over the old, comfortable experiences with our own people. And this section of scripture has been titled, The Cost of Discipleship. But it could be just as easily called the cost of learning to follow Jesus. And a huge part of this learning process is the leaving behind what we thought we knew, the limitations that once held us back to be open to the challenge of following Jesus wherever that might lead us. I mean, think about how Jesus called his first disciples. He told them, drop your nets and follow me. Jesus didn't say, drop your nets, but don't worry. All we're going to do is fish. I'm going to make you the best fisherman ever. You won't believe the fish we're going to catch. No, he says, leave everything. Follow me. We're going to go fish for people. And he takes them to the places they've never been. He takes them to the margins, to the broken, to the sick, to the houses of sinners, to the wells at Samaria, to the dinner table of tax collectors, to the feet of lepers, and eventually to the cross. And to be clear, I don't think Jesus wants us to leave behind our families at the drop of a hat. That would be a bold statement on any day, but especially when a good portion of my own family is here with worship, in worship with us. Instead, I think Jesus wants us to understand that to be a disciple, 
To follow him, to learn from him, means that at some point we will grow beyond the boundaries that have given us a sense of safety. That we will grow out of the containers that have held us and venture into the great unknown. I read a devotional recently by Richard Rohr about how we as humans use these metaphorical bowls or vessels with limits to try and understand the great big mystery of God. I mean, imagine if the entity of God were the ocean and all that's in it, the water, the depths, all the animals and plants, infinitely complex and vast. And to try and understand it or even study it, we would need to contain part of it, hold it in a bucket. Otherwise, the water would just run everywhere. And Rohr speaks of the practical necessity of these vessels, the limits that we put, but emphasizes that in our walks of faith, they must grow, they must change. I mean, think about the six-year-old child at Myrtle Beach. She grabs her pail, she walks down to the water and she fills it with water and sand from the ocean. And with curiosity, she looks at the container and sees the hermit crabs and the minnows and studies them. But eventually, that child might grow into a marine biologist who in a larger quest to study schools of fish or sharks or even whales doesn't need a bucket, but an aquarium with tanks the size of central energy itself. Jesus is telling us that a whale won't fit in the child's bucket. Our vessels, the limitations we put on God and put on ourselves must grow. That is the call to discipleship, growth. And I think about that initial proverb that my granddad taught me. Get what you want, eat what you get. It was very helpful for a young Lucas who struggled to comprehend what hunger was. To hear it from grandparents who as children came very close to knowing what hunger was. It helped me to appreciate the privilege and the luxury of food. But many years later, when I sat next to a friend who has struggled for her entire life with eating disorders, body dysmorphia, and a downright toxic relationship to food, maybe telling her to eat every scrap off her plate wasn't the bit of wisdom that she needed. Maybe in empathy, I could grow beyond that singular maxim. Or I think about how crucial my dad's advice has been and has helped me as a child into an adult how it helped push me to attain the rank of Eagle Scout, how it helped me work hard enough to become an all-state level lacrosse player, how it helped propel me forward over and over again. But when I'm sitting with a man in his 50s, an exhausted dad who hates his job, he feels pressure to work more, more hours than he should, he feels the pressure to achieve, to sell, to earn constantly. He doesn't sleep more than an hour a night. And when I see him, he is cracking. His mental and physical health is held together by scotch tape and he's ready to crumble. I look at him and I think maybe winners need to know when to take a Sabbath, how to rest. Heck, God rested on the seventh day, then I'd say he deserves some time where his value isn't measured by production. Maybe in care, I could grow beyond an absolute involving winning and quitting. The maxims of our heritage will fail at some point. 
The bowls of our past won't be able to hold all the truth, all the messiness, the nuance, the wisdom, and the love required of following Jesus now. And it doesn't mean we need to hate on the past. We can see what good, what real good might have come from your family of origin, from those lessons, from your heritage, those lessons you learned, and be grateful for that. But we must also realize that in the call of Christ is greater. God is doing a new thing. And Jesus asks us to join in. Every time we baptize a child at downtown church, we ask them to join in. We're asking them to join into this messy ministry of God. And we pray these words. We say when their church, when their family, when their pastor and their parents fail them, we give thanks that you, God, you do not. My hope is that Jasper and Brooks realize that at some point my own advice, my own teaching, my own example will fail them because it will. When they see me curse at someone who cuts me off on I-26, I want them to choose Christ over me. (laughs) When they see me intentionally walk away from the beggar at the food lion, I want them to choose Christ over me. And then when they see me shout for vengeance, shout for death and painful retribution like those in the crowd at Calvary, I want them to choose Christ over me. In those moments, and in so many more, I hope and pray that the teaching that my own children and all children fall back on is the only verse that I've ever asked Brooks to memorize. Christ's self-proclaimed greatest commandment to love God and to love our neighbor. And I ask and I hope and I want them to pick up their own crosses, which maybe means leaving us behind to do the holy and difficult work that we have failed to do. And the irony is that we're reading this verse on Palm Sunday, knowing full and well that the crowds who shout for Jesus to save us Those who wave palm branches in the air will not pick up their own cross. They won't grow their bucket. They won't change. They'll fall back on old habits, habits of violence, of fear. A few days after Palm Sunday, we get Good Friday. The crowds who praise Jesus will choose apathy to Roman instruments of torture. They will choose to shout, crucify him crucify him rather than stand up and question why a society should ever sentence anyone to death. They will fail Jesus. They will kill Jesus. And Jesus, he forgives them. Jesus forgives us. But before he forgives them, he calls them to be a disciple. He calls them to grow. Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote that the call to discipleship is a gift of grace. And that call is inseparable from grace. The call to discipleship is a gift of grace and that call is inseparable from grace. In our call, Jesus forgives us. But he also expects much from us. He expects us to learn, to listen, He challenges us to be a disciple, to grow, 
to grow beyond where we have been and to grow beyond where we are now. May we try. Thanks be to God. Amen. When have you been stuck? A friend told me this story of when he was hiking in the trails of Colorado. He went on an annual backpacking trip with his buddies. And he said, you know, most of the guys are physically fit, but every once in a while, you know, we'd, we'd have a year where it was hard to get to the gym. That kind of took pl- turns. So there was this mix of friends, different physical fitness levels, and they came to this really rough part of the trail. It seemed like some boulders had fallen on the trail and the only way to stay on the trail was to kind of shimmy through the rocks to emerge on the other side. Well, the leader of the group goes first. He steps forward. He takes off his heavy pack and he kind of looks at the shape of the rocks and taking a deep breath puts the backpack back on, tightens the hip band and grabs his walking steps. And then he uses those to kind of leverage against the rock to make it to the other side. And when he does make it to the other side, he doesn't have to say a thing. Everybody knows that this is gonna be the hardest part of the trek. So the next guy goes through and it takes him a little bit longer But finally, relief, he gets to the other side. Then the next guy, he goes in. It's been a few minutes. He doesn't come out. Panicked, they hear his voice. Help! I'm stuck. Then panic starts to spread to everybody else in the group as they realize the gravity of this predicament. They're in the middle of nowhere And no one can get to him, not from the top, not from the bottom. There's nothing they can do. Finally, the leader from the the top just calls down, just keep moving. I could imagine some better advice. I mean, I I don't like that at all. That's like dumping a whole bunch of salt into an already open wound. It stings. And it's quiet for a while. And then everybody starts to hear this shuffling. There's no strategy, just this guy is moving. One part, any part to try to get some traction to start moving up the rocks. And there are some grunts and there are some words that are not appropriate for church. And finally, he makes it to the top. When have you been stuck like that? Stuck where no one can get to you. Stuck where no one can help you. Stuck where you got to just keep moving. There's a mom in this church who can relate. Her kid is in college. He's a student. And he is uh, not making it to class. I hear some giggles. He's not making it to class and his grades are dropping by the day. And this mom, she knows why. Her son has witnessed a real tragedy in the family and his grief is delayed. It's hitting him now. 
But this mom, she can't just sit still and watch her kid drop out of school. So she picks up the phone and she calls him and she said, what's going on? Why are you not going to class? And he says, I'm too sad. And this mom with nothing else to do, she says, go to class sad. Go to class sad. She said, it's okay to be sad. It's okay for the whole world to see that you're sad, but nothing is going to change if you stay in that bed sad. Get up, go to class sad. You know, I think of the women who rose early on that Easter morning. What if they had stayed in the bed sad? I mean, think about it. They just watched their friend, their brother, their leader suffer and die on a cross. A few days before, they watched it with their own eyes. They could have stayed in bed, sad. I mean, the apostles stay in bed, sad. And I'm not one to judge. I probably would have been in bed, sad. In fact, we often choose to stay in bed because it's the more comfortable choice, you know, wrapped in the blanket of what we know. Even if what we know is death and numbness, we choose that because it seems better than getting up and walking about in the world sad. It's natural for us to isolate ourselves from everything and everyone, especially when it seems like no one else could possibly understand. And yet, aren't we glad that those women got out of bed sad? Aren't we glad that they walked to the tomb sad because what they saw changed them and us forever? They saw an empty tomb. They saw Christ resurrected from the dead. They saw that new life is possible, that not even death can keep us stuck between rocks of a tomb. That's the Easter story. I told you these words from John 3.16, they come from Jesus' mouth to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was also stuck. He was stuck in his good reputation, in his faithfulness to the Jewish law. Nicodemus was a Jewish teacher and people expect certain things of teachers. What would people think if they knew he was even curious about this man named Jesus? Y'all, they would laugh at him and they would call him blasphemous and he'd probably be out of a job. So stuck Nicodemus, he travels in the cover of night to Jesus. And when he meets with Jesus, he gets a chance to ask all of his questions and to listen to Jesus tell him about this new life. And he becomes unstuck. Nicodemus decides right then, I want to follow Jesus. And not just on the sly from a distance. I want to be baptized right here, right now. Jesus opens up a wider view of God for Nicodemus. Not a narrow God that fits in our margins of belief in between two rocks. No, a wider God, a God that comes to earth to be near us and to teach us and to forgive us. 
As, Jesus, as Nicodemus makes this discovery, a wider world opens to him. This Jesus is a savior not just to the Jews, not just to the Gentiles, but to everyone who believes. I wonder where Nicodemus was when he got the news that Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb. You might remember that Nicodemus had helped bury Jesus' body. Just a few days before, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they paid a large sum for Jesus' body so they could make sure that it had the proper anointing and burial. He saw the tomb secure. How then did he take the news that Jesus' body was missing? I wonder if he got up like the women and later the apostles, if he walked to the tomb, sad, sure, but also in wonder, eager to see the truth that he already knows, the truth that new life is possible, the truth that death does not have the final word, the truth that any place where we feel stuck, Jesus is working to set us free. You and I, we've been studying forgiveness in Scripture the past few weeks, and there may have been a person or two that that surfaced for you, someone that either you need to ask for forgiveness from or someone you need to forgive. How many of us still feel stuck? I do. I still feel stuck in the shame knowing that I need forgiveness. I still feel stuck with the decision of whether or not it's wise for me to forgive. I still feel stuck, unsure how we can move forward from here. I know how hard some of us have been working on forgiveness. And you may have found the words to say, I forgive you or forgive me. Or you may not be ready. And that's okay. This Easter message is for you, our God. Our God is a God that opens tombs. Our God is a God that loves us so much that he sent his only son to free us from our tombs. Jesus frees us wherever we are stuck. Jesus is the ultimate example of forgiveness And forgiveness, it's part of that new life that Jesus is describing. Just last week, somebody came forward to me and they pulled up their phone and they showed me a text message, the little blue blurb, where they had written the words, I forgive you. They showed it to me. And I know how hard that movement was for them how much courage it took to type out those words and then not edit them back. I know the temptation to stay stuck, to leverage the rocks in around you, to protect you from harm, to stay warm in the bed, sad, but she didn't. Like the man caught between those rocks, like the student who goes to class, sad, like the women who go to the tomb, sad, she moves. And she types those words, I forgive you. 
When I asked her how the rest of the conversation went, you know, the text messages that followed, her spirit dropped. She said, yeah, it didn't go too great from there. Isn't that the truth with forgiveness? It's messy. Forgiveness, it doesn't always mean that the relationship will heal. Forgiveness doesn't mean that things go back to the way they were before. It won't. It can't. But forgiveness means that you are no longer stuck. It means you are moving, bolstered by the forgiveness Christ gives you. You are moving into this new life. And like Nicodemus, you are opening up your view of God to see a God that moves stones, a God that frees us, a God who loves us so much that he came to be near us and to love us and to take on our suffering and free us. I'm so proud of this person for moving, for not staying stuck because now she expects something different. She looks with new eyes on this relationship. Y'all don't sleep on the Easter message. Easter's not just about this gift of entry to an afterlife party with Jesus, which I'm excited about, by the way. It's more. Jesus opens the way for us to experience new life right here, right now. Even in the relationships that feel impossible. And even in the places where you are so alone, and even in those places where you are stuck right now, God is working to free you. Jesus is not stuck between rocks. He has risen, and with him, so do we rise too. Alleluia. Amen.